1: Well, hello. Here we are back again for another episode of GodPod. Back in the bunker. Back in the bunker. Here we are below ground, looking up at the skylight. Hopefully that someone will feed us a little morsel of food. (laughs) It's not that bad. Um, But today we have um, uh, myself, Graham Tomlin, and we have Michael Lloyd. Hi. And uh, I'm afraid we don't have Jane with us today, but we do have Dr. Chris Tilling.
0: Either that or Jane's voice has gone deeper all of a sudden. You don't sound anything like it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nor, I think, are your theological views are entirely <laughs> yes, compatible. <this> could <laughs> be, could be true.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be back. Chris has done uh, several God pods in the past, and he is our New Testament, no, senior New Testament lecturer. Here at Saint Malitus College, so um, Chris it's great to have you with us on GodPod. Good to be back. It's so, very good. So we are going um, to this one. This one is going to have a little bit of a, a, a um, emphasis upon kind of biblical New Testament questions, bearing in mind Chris's expertise in that area and our general
2: incompetence.
1: I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> like, I don't know much about it at all, but <laughs> it doesn't stop us talking about it. But there you go. Anyway, we're going to start with a question. Um, well, we get several questions. We get a lot of questions come in from different parts of the world, and I'm pleased to keep coming them in, sending them in. But um, quite a lot of questions around the area of the historicity of the Bible, and uh, we could have picked up many of them because uh, a lot of different questions come in. But just uh, to take one of them, this is one from uh, Rusty Elliott in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In United States of America. Hello, Rusty. Albuquerque. That sounds like something out of a western, doesn't it? I want to go to Albuquerque one day. Yeah. Sounds very
2: good, doesn't it? Graham fishing for an invitation to, <laughs> to speak.
1: <laughs> that was very subtle, Graham. <laughs> Albuquerque. I love that name. Anyway, this is the question that Rusty says. She says, um, "I say she. Maybe it's a he."
2: I would imagine it's a he, but I. Yeah, it I'm- could be. Sorry, Rusty. We got off to a terrific start. (laughs) Who do
1: he, she from now on? (laughs) Here is the question. How do you respond to people who take pleasure in challenging the historical accuracy of the Scriptures, and in particular the New Testament? Uh, I'm a parishioner in an Episcopal church where the views of Marcus Borg, John Dominic Cross, and Adolf von Harnick are very... Frequently, topics of discussion. So, what uh, what are our thoughts on that? How do we um? What do you do if you're in an environment where that happens, or, or if yourself you are troubled by um, historical criticism of um of the the Bible does it matter that many scholars seem to say that many of the things that purport to be history in the New Testament, in particular, may not be. Does that matter, or um, should we be more concerned and take a very different view of it?
2: The first thing to say is uh, that at least they are taking the historical questions seriously because it matters. Uh, Christianity is proclaims itself to be, it is a historical religion. Either God became human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, or he didn't. Uh, and therefore we have various commitments, historical commitments. Uh, that's not to say that every single thing that's said in the Bible needs to be absolutely historically, literally true. Uh, but it is to say that there is an engagement with history Uh, from god or we're wasting our time here
1: and that is something that runs right through the bible doesn't it because from the very earliest pages you think of you know genesis 12 for example the calling of abraham that is a it's a kind of it's purported as a historical thing that god did call this particular person this particular people for a role within the world you know christianity and its history in, in the Hebrew Scriptures doesn't have any sense of a sort of set of ideas. It's not a sort of philosophy in that sense that is ahistorical historical that sort of floats somehow above history. It, it either interacts with history or it's a very different thing altogether.
0: And so he seems to me you can't quite avoid the historical question. Yeah, J.B. Card, who was a New Testament scholar, um, a number of years ago, he wrote, Christianity appeals to history. Therefore, to history it must go. So there's a sense in which we, we, we do read the Bible as historical documents. Unfortunately, of course, it doesn't answer all of the questions then, does it? There's a lot to wrestle with when it comes to reading the Bible as historical documents. Because this is not to say that it's all historical in a straightforward sense. So if if, the, um, if we want to say that, that
1: Christians can't avoid the historical question, it's not really open for us to say. Well, it's fine. It's all a kind of um, it's a it's a, it's a it's a story. It's a philosophy. It doesn't really interact with history. But well, it does interact with history. That's the kind of very nature of the Christian claim that God has entered into human history in the history of Israel and in the person of Christ, in the incarnation, the resurrection, and so on. What does that then say about how we look at perhaps some of the details of the gospels, for example, mm-hmm. and how
0: historical do they need to be? Yeah, I mean, one of the there are so many different perspectives on this, but one of the things I like to talk about in classes is to get us back why are we reading these documents? You know, what do we expect from them? Um we're ultimately reading them as holy scripture because we believe that God is going to speak to us through these texts. Um and th- I think that is a very helpful starting point. These texts are there for us because they are the Word of God, because, they, because we expect that God is going to speak to us through these texts. That's primarily why we're, we're reading them, right? Now, that then has a number of corollaries, I think, because to read these texts aright means that we read them, not first and foremost as an abstract, perfect historian, but as disciples of Jesus Christ, to to read these texts as holy scripture in the church is first and foremost to say, here I am, Lord, send me, or uh, yes, Lord, and so go I. I. I think that will help us to negotiate some of the choppier waters, because let's be honest, when it comes to parts of the Old Testament in particular, we just can't be sure about the historical validity of all of these texts because we don't have any evidence about the existence of Moses, for example. We just we don't know. We can't externally verify all of these things or the dates of the conquests. Some of the archaeological findings don't always match up with what we have in, in Joshua and so on. So there are real struggles, real difficult questions that we, we can't avoid, that we can't dodge, we can't pretend aren't there. Um, but through, through the storm, the anchor is this. We read these as the word of God in order to say yes to Jesus Christ.
2: I, I agree with that, but it could be read, what you've just said, as uh, a way of getting round any historical commitment. Mm-hmm. Now, what and, and I think there is a there's a number of different differentiations one needs, needs to make. One is that not all the Bible is purporting to be history. Some of it's law, some of it's poetry, some of it's um, all sorts of parable. (laughs) Um, And therefore, you know, we are not committed to the view that a man went up from Jerusalem to Jericho and got set upon by robbers. Uh, That's a parable. Um, And therefore it's historical. uh, Whether it happened or not historically is is, is irrelevant. But that's not true of the resurrection. Mm Um, or the crucifixion, for instance. That so one does have to take a, a, a different view depending on the kind of literature. That that the yeah the, the particular bit of scripture genre matters, it. doesn't it? Yeah. Genre matters.
0: Yeah. yeah. Don't read a telephone book the same way we read poetry. Genre matters. Yes, yeah. Exactly. But it does seem to me
1: that Chris's point holds, though, because I mean, I just thinking of that text at the end of John's Gospel, where um, it's in John twenty, where. it John seems just going to kind of sum up the purpose of the of the book, and he says how um, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name, which kind of takes you back to the purpose of the writing of the Bible, the person of the writing of the the Bible and the Gospels, which is what this text refers to. Uh, its purpose is, is not primarily to give us accurate historical information about jesus now it is wanting to give us that and we can say something about more of that in a moment but its primary purpose is so that we may come to believe in jesus the messiah that's a subtly different purpose it's not a documentary to give us information it's 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 risen with a very very definite purpose it is that we might come to believe in jesus christ now that then leads on to the question of well what do we need to know in order to believe in jesus christ and it seems to me that what we find in the gospels is let's put in the gospel of john is something that that is that has a historical core to it i mean i guess those of you who listen to godboard 82 with richard borkham um, uh, you can go back to listen to that if you want to, but it's a, it's a you know he argues quite strongly for the the eyewitness account of, of of the gospel writers that there is a very strong historical core here. There's a good reason for re- for, for thinking that uh, the bulk of what we read goes back to very early eyewitness mm-hmm. accounts. Um, that isn't to say at the same time that in order to help us believe. Um, John and maybe the other Gospels, are telling the story in a particular way. They select certain parts, they tell the story in a particular way, um, that may, from time to time, emphasize some bits, de-emphasize other bits. Um, And so therefore... Uh, which is to be, you know, we have to kind of give the gospel writers a bit of, sort of leeway to, 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 tell their story in such a way that they don't feel has to be this happened, then that happened, this sort of exact documentary account,
0: because its purpose is different. Yeah. And that's Michael's point earlier on is about genre. If, if the gospels are in terms of genre, uh, in the same family as Greco-Roman biography, Greco-Roman biography, um, like Suetonius' Lives of Caesar and and so on. They, They weren't there to give perfect historical, detailed, and chronological information. They were there to give you the gist of these lives. You know, a true gist, but the gist not necessarily closely chronologically arranged. There'd be an awful lot of time spent on the death of whatever character they're focusing on and short pithy sayings. And all of these you find in the Gospels. And what we get there is the gist of Jesus Christ and what God wants us to know about this life. The Gospels are not
2: particularly interested in chronological order either uh, in, in the details you know did the cleansing of the tep- temple happening happen at the beginning of jesus ministry or the, just before his death Th- those are different things but but the question uh, asks particularly about people who who delight in knocking the historical basis and and my suspicion is that people who actually enjoy that process have a different religion in mind that, that because of the historical commitment to God becoming human in Jesus Christ and being crucified and raised that gives one uh, one's view of God a Jesus shape mm-hmm. uh, and somebody who's trying to knock the connection the historical connections off the board is actually presumably got a different kind of God that they're trying to to present or at least there's a danger that that yeah. is what's going
1: on yeah, that's right and there's a there is that sort of extreme historical skepticism that on a, on one hand i don't think you know you need to be committed to a position that says every single detail has to be exactly as it as it's written there but on the other hand it seems to be also that actually to go towards an extreme historical skepticism to say that these documents are historically unreliable uh, is as mike says verging towards something very, very different. It's actually saying that actually Christian faith is not a historical religion in the sense that God has not entered into his human history in this way. Or if that he has, we can't tell much about it. Mm -hmm. In other words, what it leaves you with is a sort of blank Christ, this sort of principle that God may have entered into human history, but we can't tell much about him. We don't know what he's like. Because actually if if our gospels don't give us a you know a reasonably accurate picture of what Jesus Christ is like, they don't really tell us anything about God. Most people want, most people who have some kind
2: of theistic faith within the broadly Christian tradition want to say that God is love. Um, But how do we know that if he hasn't actually entered his world and done something about it? In what way would a God who has not become incarnate and suffered as we suffer and uh, done something about the state of the world, in what why would that God be a loving God? So uh, the historical agreement is not just us going, oh, we've got to believe this and you've got to believe that. It's it's saying what kind of God are we dealing with here? Is it the sort of God yeah. who comes into our world, uh, suffers as we do, to, not not remote, not indifferent, um, but, but involved, committed, uh, passionate, dying, and and, and and transforming and a,
1: and a God who overcomes evil and because a God it who, who me, overcomes that's what evil. we you know crucial to christian faith is is hope, the sense that that evil does not have the last word, it's temporary it it, it happens it ex, it it's there, but it will be defeated now what grounds do we have for saying that? That's why it seems to me that the miracles of jesus are are a, are a kind of crucial part of the story yes. that actually Jesus confronts sickness and illness and disease and death and he overcomes it and if those parts of the story can be just edited out then we've lost something really vital about what christian faith tells us about god we've lost hope seems to me
2: we can't just believe those because we like to believe those and that's a nice God to believe in. We've got to have historical historical basis for saying that and therefore the historical debate is an important one and we've got to engage in it. But I think there are very good reasons for believing in the historicity of yeah. the resurrection.
0: Although there might be another way of seeing it like that because I wouldn't want to say that we have to historically ground uh... the truth of jesus christ we can't go behind jesus christ and 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 support him with further truths because that's to make those truths more ultimate and i I wonder if there's a sense in which when we are captured by the truth of jesus christ in whatever way whether it's through personal relationships whether on an alpha course In light of that, we can then go back and see, well, this makes sense. Uh, We can see how this might make sense of some of the historical information. Not always, but the the whole idea of suggesting that we could justify historically uh, resurrection and things like that isn't going to convince many historians unless they have already been gripped by the reality of Jesus. Probably not exactly what you're saying, um, but that was a, a thought that popped in are we going to have a fight? <laughs> He's lining up. Um,
2: I, I think I want to say that the historical basis for believing the resurrection is, is, is pretty strong. I don't think um, that it conflicts with what we know. I, I agree with you that that how somebody comes to faith is a matter of a whole mass of different things, not least, of course, the work of the Spirit within them. Um, but there have been people who have been persuaded of the his- historical reality of the resurrection and therefore come to faith. Uh, that has been their route. I agree for a lot of other people it can be being deeply impressed with the Christian life of somebody else or having an experience of God in some shape, you know, probably not shape or form, but <laughs> in some way. Um, so is that are we going to
0: avoid a fight? or Looks like we might. Oh, yeah. it's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Our fights are very gentle here on They're <laughs> <laughs> Not that.
1: I haven't got the fisticus yet. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a really fascinating question, though, isn't it? That whole kind of area of... To what extent does Christian faith require historical Mm. analysis? It does seem to me that, back to our original point, because Christianity is a historical religion, we cannot avoid the historical question. Which is why we can't just say, oh, historical critics, they're just a waste of time. We kind of have to ask that question. Um, But at the same time, we want to say that Christian faith doesn't rest on the verdict of historians, that actually we don't have to sort of wait to see what the historians say before we can believe, because as this is your point, Chris, it it is about the meeting the risen Christ in the church, in christian fellowship in the eucharist in the scriptures in whatever way that happens but we then need to go back to the scriptures and to see that this is actually is does have historical grounding mm-hmm. because if we go back to the scriptures and find that it doesn't then it begins to lead us into this different kind of religion this slightly more sort of gnostic religion that we talked about a little bit earlier on mm-hmm. um to move on to another question chris while we've got you here um, one of the questions that sometimes comes into us here in is is um, uh, questions around St. Paul and Jesus. And um, I guess one of the questions is, um, you know, what effect did Christian what did St. Paul have upon Christianity? Because there are people who say that actually St. Paul basically invented Christianity mm. um, And, uh, you know, Jesus had one kind of religion and St. Paul basically came in and turned it into something very different. So usually
2: that's Jesus' religion good, St. St. Paul's religion
1: bad, nasty. Exactly. And um, so that's one part of the question. I guess the other question is a question around, you know, what did St. Paul actually think of of Jesus Christ? What was his sort of... um, you know, did Jesus think he was divine and so on? I know that's a question you thought of a great deal. So there are two questions there. I suppose the first one is this question of, you know, to what extent did, did St. Paul um, kind of impose a, a, an interpretation on Jesus Christ that is actually alien to Jesus' teaching himself? Yeah.
0: The Adolf von Harnack, he was a, a scholar at the turn of the previous century, and he was convinced that Jesus... uh he brought the true religion, the fatherhood of God, the infinite value of the individual. Paul came along and he started making everything complicated, throwing in philosophy where it wasn't needed. So as, as Mike said, you know, that's when it's bad. Then it made something simple, difficult. And did
2: and you just and use the church as well? Was that part of his thing that Paul it was a more individual thing under jesus a that's more, it uh, yeah yeah ecclesiological that's thing. right
0: and it becomes dirty and ecclesial ecclesiastical ecclesiastical that's the one ecclesiastical is quite a nice word <laughs> bendy church, uh, a it? bendy church. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new pattern i think getting, uh, i should write a book on that <laughs> now i've lost my thought but um well, i think one of the the issues uh that confronts a reading like that is to explain why it is that paul and the pauline churches had any continuity at all with the disciples of jesus himself the historical jesus paul had relations with peter and james and john in the early church they knew what he was reading and uh, writing and the things that he was teaching and we also know the things that got him in trouble with other people in the early church and it wasn't a radically different understanding of Jesus at all. In any document that we see that got Paul in trouble, rather it was his understanding of the law as applicable, or rather not applicable, for Gentile Christians. That's the, That was the issue that, that, that wound the early church up. They had a big council about it. You can read about this in Acts, Acts 15. Um, they had to settle this. Should Gentiles who come to know Jesus Christ be circumcised or not. That was what they were worried about. But what Paul said about Jesus Christ and who Jesus is, it seems everybody was very happy with this. There wasn't any dispute on this point. And the the, the key here is that Paul understood Jesus in in a way that Jews of his age understood God alone. And this is to say that Paul understood Jesus to be God in a very Jewish way. And this wasn't re- new and revolutionary. This is something that every Christian seemed happy with. So how, how do you, how do you um, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, Jesus,
1: Paul understood Jesus to be God in a very Jewish way. Don't it, just expand
0: on that for a moment. Well, who, is, who is God? How will we say that is God and that isn't God? It's, we tend to do that by, by that title, the than the God. Um, and so Jehovah Witnesses for example They're very keen to try to say that Jesus isn't the God of Israel But maybe a God And so they do some things with John's Gospel And translation of John's Gospel there But for Paul and for many other early Christians Just to say God isn't to say that is as we would understand God at all Paul can speak of Satan as the God of this world um, Moses could be understood to be God, El in in Jewish texts. So what and who is God for Second Temple Jews? This is Jews from around the period of of the New Testament. And and what we have there, God is the one to whom Israel is devoted utterly, over against idolatry, uh, in all of life that is who God is. It is the one to whom we are committed to absolutely over against idolatry until death. And what we see... And in, after. And after, <laughs> yeah. And what we see with with Paul, and this is precisely how he expected people to relate to Jesus Christ. And he uses this this language to describe the relationship between Christians and Jesus Christ in a way that was absolutely... And only used of the relationship between Israel and God. So, does that relate to his kind of calling them to utter allegiance to Jesus Christ? That would be is part that, of it, that yes. It yeah. Uh, absolute allegiance, um, utter devotion, considering all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ or, or whether it be... So you'd
1: expect him at that point
0: to say it's for the surpassing worth of knowing God. Yeah, yeah, or or fearing God, but he speaks of fearing the Lord or wanting to be with Jesus in, in eternity, But and that's exactly what he says. Or gave him the name that is above
2: every name the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So There's kind of worship implied
0: there. Yeah, that would be a part of that that um, relational commitment to the one God, which was understood as relationship with Jesus. And I suppose it's it's
1: significant, isn't it, that, that the early Christians seem to have worshipped Jesus from the very earliest times. And it's significant in the later... In disputes over Arius' teaching, and we've talked about that on God, but before, you know, in the, um, the fourth century, one of the key points that Athanasius makes about against Arius, who wanted to argue that Jesus was not fully divine. Well, Athanasius said, well, hang on a minute, you know, we've always worshipped Jesus. So what have we been doing? And if, if Jesus is not divine, we've been guilty of idolatry because we've been worshipping a human being. We've been worshipping a worshiping a, crea- a creature. But he was able to appeal to a long history of Christian worship of Jesus, which presumably goes right back to the very beginning, including the time
0: of St. Paul and yeah, so Yeah, mostly. I mean, some scholars have said, but there's not that much evidence that Jesus was worshipped in the Paul, in Paul's letters, but I think that just that's a very restricted definition of worship. You know, Paul says that our whole lives are acts of worship. You know, Romans twelve, and there's a sense in which our the whole lives of these Christians were patterned after devotion to Jesus Christ, um, and and in that sense, there's worship of Jesus from the very beginning. People often have
2: it in their minds that. Um, uh, Paul is a late development. The early, you know, the Gospels tell us about uh, you know, a Jesus who isn't yet divine, but it's only when you get later to Paul that you, know, you have divinity. But of course, that's wrong in two ways. One is that Paul is earlier than the Gospels uh, and therefore closer to the events than the, the actual Gospel writers. Uh, and secondly, the Gospel writers seem to have the same view of Jesus. That Paul does. I'm thinking of just a little, uh, tiny little bit, uh, hardly noted by the by Luke, but where uh, he drives out a demon from a demoniac, uh, and the man, uh, Jesus says to the man, "Return home and tell how much God has done for you." Mm-hmm. And then we're told the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, if that isn't a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, who is Jesus moment from Luke, I don't know what is really. Um, So I think both those assumptions are are, are very misleading
1: ones. We do underestimate how. Thoroughly radical and revolutionary That kind of statement would have been Because we we now read it back And of course Christians have always thought That Jesus was divine But actually for a Jew to say that Anything other than Yahweh is divine Is a very, very dangerous and radical statement and so you don't say that just as a sort of throwaway thing you you only and it's actually quite remarkable that those sorts of things were being said quite early on in the Christian mm. um, Christian world and, and which speaks towards the kind of revolution in the nature of, of of understanding of who God was that went on the seeds of which you can see in St. Paul's theology and in, and in the Gospels and the fruit of which was the doctrine of the Trinity that came out in the years to come. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you very much indeed for your time with us in GodPod today. It's um, fascinating to, to have one that's looking a little bit at uh, the Gospels and St Paul. So um, um, we will be back again before too long, and uh, hopefully Jane will be with us next time round. But this time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.
0: That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.